Hello and welcome to another episode. This is episode 5 of our series on debunked scientific theories. Today we're learning about preformationism. Preformationism was a theory about how the organism develops as an embryo. Today we know that we begin as a single cell that begins growing when the DNA of a sperm combines with the DNA of a much larger egg. As a single cell, we have no distinguishing features. Our features gradually appear from generic tissue. Preformationism, meanwhile, claimed that organisms develop from a miniature version of themselves. Your fully formed self always existed inside either sperm or eggs. It was just very tiny. You know those little pills that contain a compressed dinosaur sponge? You put it in water and it grows? That's how you can think of preformationism. The implications here are pretty dramatic. If you began fully formed, so do the fully formed versions of any potential children you'd have inside your sperm or egg cells. Therefore, every single living thing that would ever exist has always existed, just mostly in miniature form. Unlike all other scientific theories we've discussed so far, preformationism goes directly against the philosophical ideas of the pre-scientific age. Hardly anyone imagined preformationism until the late 1600s. After that, preformationism burned bright but faded fast. Preformationism was incompatible with atomic theory, evolution, von Baer's laws of embryonic development, the fact that most life reproduces asexually, and, worst of all, common sense. But the history of it is fascinating. We will meet several new historical figures, but also recall many we've talked about before, including Francesco Reddy, Anton von Leeuwenhoek, René Descartes, Ernst von Baer, Hans Driesch, and more. Let's get started. Before we begin today's episode, if you like this content and want to support me, there are links to my Patreon, Venmo, and more in the description on Spotify, or you can go to my YouTube channel and click the link in the banner that says support the channel. You can also find me on YouTube, Instagram, and TikTok. Just search Planet Peterson on those platforms. Okay, back to the episode. Rather than beginning with the roots of preformationism, we have to begin with the roots of the opposite of preformationism. As I said in the intro, Preformationism ran counter to the ideas of ancient thinkers and did not draw on inspiration from them apart from, arguably, some religious inspirations. The earliest naturalistic account of how life develops comes from Pythagoras. We all know Pythagoras because of the Pythagorean theorem, but Pythagoras had an entire school of dedicated mathematicians. And by a school of dedicated mathematicians, I mean a religious cult. No, seriously. They believed in reincarnation, that Earth orbits an invisible anti-Earth every 24 hours, were banned from eating meat or beans, performed animal sacrifices, prayed to the number 10, were forbidden from touching white roosters, thought Pythagoras could talk to bears, and that he could write messages on the moon. Aside from those beliefs, the Pythagoreans also believed that inheritance came from fathers only in the form of sperm. The mother provided the material substance needed to incubate life, but our traits and attributes were paternally inherited, for better or worse. Aristotle expanded on this and developed a theory of how organisms develop. He called it epigenesis. According to epigenesis, the organism develops through a series of stages from an undifferentiated mass, the exact opposite of preformationism. 
We now fast forward to the 1600s and an English physician named William Harvey. Harvey's most important contribution was the discovery that blood circulates in the body and is pumped by the heart. The conventional wisdom had always been that blood is constantly made by the liver and absorbed by the body. This idea originated with Galen. In 1651, Harvey published On the Generation of Animals, where he published his observations and experiments on animal development and how he believed the human embryo develops. Like Aristotle, Harvey believed in epigenesis. Unlike Aristotle, Harvey believed life came from eggs, not sperm. But theories of epigenesis butted heads with one of the most influential philosophical and scientific thinkers of that time. René Descartes died the year before Harvey published On the Generation of Animals. Some scientific thinkers' works were not recognized until long after their deaths, such as Copernicus, Mendel, and Alfred Wegener. But much of Descartes' works were well known in his brief 54 years. We discussed Descartes' ideas about life in the episode on vitalism, so I will be brief. Descartes believed that living things functioned like complex machines and were driven by internal forces. A Cartesian view of life does not work well with the theory of epigenesis. How can life become a complex machine if it begins as an unformed amorphous blob of living matter? To say that life gradually becomes a complex machine violates the idea that life is a complex machine. Harvey's concept of epigenesis also emphasizes the significance of continuous, dynamic interactions between an organism and its environment. In contrast, Descartes' concept of mind-body dualism proposes that the human mind and body are distinct entities that interact, and the mind, or soul, guides development. Like Descartes, Harvey was a Christian, but his theory does not assume the role of any supernatural force in guiding the development of life. Descartes' views were more philosophical than scientific, but that's what people tend to gravitate towards. Descartes never endorsed preformationism, but his philosophical worldview was the underpinning of future thinkers who developed preformationism. Anton von Leeuwenhoek made numerous discoveries in microbiology. In fact, he was the world's first microbiologist. He discovered bacteria, protozoa, blood cells, capillaries, muscle fibers, cell walls, and, relevant to this podcast, sperm cells. The year of the discovery was 1677. To many, the discovery of individual sperm cells, or spermatocytes, counted against epigenesis. How could an individual spermatocyte be capable of kick-starting life? Critics of epigenesis argued there couldn't possibly be enough information within a single cell to make life develop from scratch, so to speak. Von Leeuwenhoek said an entire organism must be contained inside the sperm cell. Preformation theory began in earnest in the late 1600s, primarily by anatomists, people who study anatomy, such as Giuseppe Degli Aromatari, Marcello Malpigi, and Jan Swammerdam. I don't have time to give their bios, but they all made significant discoveries in anatomy. But despite being preformationists, they did not always see eye to eye. Preformationists were torn between whether the egg or the sperm contained the preformed organism. These two factions were deemed the spermists and ovists. For example, Lazaro Spallanzani was an ovist. 
Spallanzani was mentioned in the first debunked scientific theory episode about spontaneous generation. Preformationism did not just butt heads with epigenesis, it was also an antidote to the widely believed theory of spontaneous generation, which held that life could arise from non-living matter. Spontaneous generation in and of itself is a form of epigenesis, just not strictly a biological one. Many ovists argued their position made more sense because if sperm contained all life that would ever be born, then wasted sperm would lead to the death of countless numbers of fully formed but tiny animals and humans. Believing sperm contained life led to some pretty wild thoughts. Gottfried Leibniz believed that spilled seed could generate life by being spread by the wind and finding a suitable host. In the 1520s, a German alchemist named Paracelsus argued if you mixed human semen with horse dung, heated it, and buried it in the mud, a human would grow from it. Seriously. What worked most heavily against ovists was that nobody knew mammals, let alone humans, have eggs. The mammalian egg wasn't discovered until 1827 by Ernst von Baer. Despite the illogical nature of wasted life in sperm, there was no equivalent known in humans to be the source of the fully formed organism. The most famous spermist was von Leeuwenhoek, who thought that by virtue of their ability to move around, spermatocytes mimicked life. Then, in 1694, Nicholas Hartsoker drew the homunculus. The homunculus was the tiny, curled-up organism inside the sperm cell. The homunculus was the fully formed individual within the spermatocyte that grew inside the female. Around the same time, French philosopher and theologian Nicolas Mollenbrank proposed a philosophical argument that suggested a seed or egg could contain an infinite series of organisms. While Mollenbrank did not explicitly endorse preformationism, this was the only logical conclusion you could derive from it. If sperm or egg cells contained a fully formed organism, then that organism also contained sperm or egg cells, each with fully formed organisms ad infinitum. Funny enough, the Catholic Church was a fan of preformationism. Why? Because it meant that every human that will ever be born was in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned. This meant we did not just inherit original sin, we were, in a way, part of it. That is the history behind preformationism. Next, I'd like to explain how later scientific discoveries buried preformationism. In 1744, a naturalist from Geneva, Abraham Tembley, published a book on the hydra. Hydras are adorable freshwater animals that resemble anemones. Hydras can reproduce sexually with sperm and egg, but they can also reproduce through budding. Budding is where a fragment of the parent organism breaks off and develops into a full-fledged individual. This was clearly epigenesis. One of the main life jackets of preformationism was there was no technology to see inside the sperm or egg with enough clarity to prove there was no homunculus. But hydras are visible to the naked eye and clearly don't break off a fully formed version of themselves that grows larger without differentiating. In fact, the entire concept of asexual reproduction is incompatible with preformationism. Preformationism theory was developed before we knew that asexual reproduction existed and that not all organisms produce sperm or eggs. Modern atomic theory, developed by Dalton in the early 1800s, also posed a massive problem. 
The dominant idea about matter before Dalton was the idea of indefinite divisibility, championed by Descartes. Indefinite divisibility didn't mean you could reduce matter in half an infinite number of times, but there was no set limit to how much an object could be reduced. This meant, conceptually, that a fully formed organism could be reduced to an almost unlimited size. However, this is physically impossible. A sperm cell is about 5 microns wide. That's 340,000 times smaller than the length of the average human. But the sperm inside the fully formed organism inside that sperm would be 340,000 times smaller than 5 microns, and so on. I did the math, and you get to a diameter smaller than a proton before you hit four generations. Dalton didn't know protons existed, but the concept of indefinite divisibility cannot work with atomic theory. Atomic theory, which was experimentally backed up, unlike preformationism, tells us that matter is composed of particles that cannot be reduced in size. If you reduce an atom, it ceases to maintain its identity. Ernst von Baer's laws of embryonic development, which were again based on observations unlike preformationism, clearly supported epigenesis. Embryos lack the distinguishing features of their parents. Before the fingers and toes are present, for example, a simple limb bud appears with no distinct features. In the early 1800s, Matthias Schlieden, Theodor Schwann, and Rudolf Virchow made the discoveries that built the backbone of cellular theory. Cell theory states that cells are the building blocks of life, and all tissues are made of cells. In order for this to work with preformationism, the cells would have to be constant in number, but begin small and grow large. Instead, we know that our bodies grow as cells divide. This, again, is epigenesis. In 1859, Charles Darwin published On the Origin of Species. The theory of evolution states that today's organisms are the descendants of different organisms from the past. This was never mentioned before, but preformationism did not allow for the infinite number of offspring contained within individuals to be different organisms somewhere along the line. That would require a level of biological predeterminism that preformationists who are theists, who believed in free will, would not have accepted. They also believed that God created all forms of life, and that each form of life reproduces only its own kind. To me, the simple fact that our wounds heal is devastating to preformationism, but our healing abilities are nothing compared to other animals. We know that some amphibians and reptiles can regrow limbs and or tails. Starfish can be cut in half and two whole organisms can develop from it. The final nail in the coffin for preformationism was the same thing that ultimately did in vitalism as well. Hans Driesch, a German biologist, performed experiments on sea urchin embryos. I have personally watched sea urchin eggs be fertilized under a microscope. It's fascinating to watch. Immediately after fertilization, the egg is enveloped in a protective membrane called the vitellian membrane. Watch it on YouTube if you're curious. Working in the 1890s, Driesch would watch the fertilized egg until it divided. He would then split the cleaved embryo in half. What would happen is two fully formed sea urchin embryos would form from each half. If a fully formed homunculus was inside the egg, cutting it in half would kill it. 
Now that I think about it, the fertilized egg dividing sort of nullifies preformationism as well, but the addition of producing twins in this experiment also mummifies preformationism. Ultimately, preformationism failed to be backed up by even one scientific discovery about life. It also never proposed a mechanism behind how the homunculus grew. What force could make it grow larger without its body parts changing in their overall structure? It was a philosophical nightmare, too. What explanation could there possibly be for every egg or sperm to contain a fully formed individual when virtually none of them would ever mature? For once, the ancients were vindicated. Epigenesis won the day. Thanks for listening.